the American History Podcast, Season 3, Episode 2, An Introduction to Austrian Economics, Part 1. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Alright, so welcome back. Alright, today this episode and tomorrow's episodes are going to be interesting ones, especially for a history podcast, as I'm not going to talk history. Instead, this is going to be a lesson in basic Austrian economics. Now, I will warn you, this is a fairly long but important couple of episodes. As a matter of fact, um, when what started out as one episode turned into two, so let's hurry up and get started. I should also warn you, that the Austrian School of Economics is far more than what I can cover in just two episodes. So just think of this as a primer. If you're interested in learning more, I'd suggest you check out Mises.org or simply email me for some book recommendations. The email is sean at the American History Podcast.com. Now, the first thing I want to address is actually why I'm doing this. I mean, why a set of episodes on economics? Well, the 20th century economist Ludwig von Mises once wrote, quote, History cannot be imagined without theory. The naive belief that, unprejudiced by any theory, one can derive history directly from the sources is quite untenable, end quote. Now, he went on to say that explanations do not reveal themselves from the facts, so we need a theory to help us to understand the facts. Further, Mises believed, and I agree with him, that economic theory was the tool that one needed to understand economic history. Quote, economic history can neither prove nor disprove the teachings of economic theory. It is on the contrary, economic theory, which makes it possible for us to conceive the economic facts of the past, end quote. So we're going to need to use uh, economic theory to help us interpret economic history. And if this season is anything, it is definitely a look at economic history. Okay, so with that out of the way, you should keep in mind, as Henry Hazlitt once said, the fact that, quote, economics is haunted by more fallacies than any other, end quote, field of knowledge known to man. Unlike, say, medicine or mathematics, um, economics is made more difficult and it's haunted by fallacies due to the special pleading of selfish interests. Every group has certain economic interests that are identical to all other groups. Each group um, you can think of has interests that are, at the same time, antagonistic to those of every other group. I'll explain this further in a few minutes, but for now, let me give you a very generic example. Group X would benefit from policy A. Now, because of that, Group X will argue for that policy to be instituted on a persistent basis. They will hire the best firms to market and to promote the policy, etc. Group Y, on the other hand, has no interest in seeing that policy implemented. However, their desire or their ability to lobby against the policy is not as great as Group X's determination to see that policy through. Other groups who would also perhaps not benefit from the policy, but don't really see it as such, or are just too busy focused on getting what they want, they don't lobby in any way, and Group X eventually wins the day. But in doing so, Group X has, what they've done is to saturate the conversation with what are, in the end, economic fallacies, many of which are now accepted as truths. Another factor which creates economic fallacies, or new economic fallacies, almost daily, is the tendency that we human beings have to focus on the immediate effects of any given policy proposal, and to neglect the long-term effects of that policy. 
I believe it was Frederick Bastiat who summed it up best by using the phrase, quote, that which is seen and that which is unseen, end quote. Now, keeping these things in mind, we can boil down the entirety of economics into a single lesson, believe it or not. And that lesson can be further reduced into a single sentence, quote, the art of economics consists in looking not merely at the immediate, but at the long-term effects of any act or policy. It consists in tracing the consequences of that policy, not merely for one group, but for all groups, end quote. I'd say that um, 95% of all economic fallacies that befuddle society are due to the fact that this simple lesson is ignored. All fallacies in economics are born from two central or base fallacies. First, we only look at the immediate effects. And secondly, we only look at how it will affect one group without considering other groups. Now, whether it is political demagoguery or simply bad economics, the reality is that these people are presenting the world with half-truths. They speak only of the immediate effect of a proposal, or they speak of how it will affect one group. As far as that goes, they might be right. In most cases, the answer is more complicated, and if it's looked at over the long term, it will have longer and less desirable effects. To come to a complete understanding of the issue, we must keep in mind the first half-truth but supplement it with the other half of the equation. So let's get away from abstracts and look at some more concrete examples of what I'm talking about. I'm sure you're sitting here wondering what the heck is worth getting at, and you're probably wondering why you ever decided to listen to this podcast in the first place. Now, the first, uh, play, the first way to place the lesson into context is to understand what is termed the broken window fallacy. So let's say that you have a shop. It doesn't matter what the shop is, but I don't know. Let's say it's a bakery and the owner is the operator and the baker. Now, it's what we sometimes refer to as a mom and pop shop. In other words, it's a small business. Now, let's say that some criminal decides to throw a brick through the window of the shop for fun and runs off. The owner's furious, but no one saw the person who committed the crime. A crowd gathers and stares at the scene. Now, believe it or not, some of the people gathered begin to think about this philosophically. Yeah, sure, they say, it's sad the owner has to purchase a new window, but hey, you know, the baker, uh, the baker's misfortune has a bright side. It makes business for the window repair company. Let's say they elaborate and come to the conclusion that a new window costs $200. And while that's, you know, a pretty price, um, if windows were never broken, what would happen to the glass business? The broken window means the window repairman has $200 that he didn't have earlier. He now has that money, and he can help pay the salary of the people he employs. Um, maybe he's got some extra money now to spend to go to dinner or to buy a new shirt. You get the picture. Finally, the lesson the crowd draws is that the criminal has helped the economy turn, and the baker's misfortune will help out the window repair shop and other people down the economic chain. Okay, yes, the crowd is correct, at least in their first conclusion, Okay. Um, this act of vandalism will certainly mean more business for the window store. However, the baker is out $200. Perhaps he was planning on using that money to purchase a new suit or take his wife out to dinner. Because he has now used that money for the window, he can't turn around and use that money to also buy a suit or a fancy dinner. When the day started, his balance sheet looked like this. He had $200 and he had a fully functioning window. At the end of the day, well, now he's down $200. And all he has is a fully functional window, something he had when the day started. He's no better off than he was when it started. 
since he was planning on buying a suit after he closed for the day, he could have been in a situation where he had a window and a new suit. As Hazlitt notes, if we think of the baker as part of the community, the community has lost a new suit that might have come into being, and is thus that much poorer. And finally, the glassmaker's gain of business is the tailor's loss of business. No new employment was created. The people in the crowd, unfortunately, were thinking only of two parties in the transaction, the baker and the window repair shop. They either forgot or they were unaware of the third party. They forgot him because he will never enter the scene. In the next day or two, they will see the new window, but they will never see the new suit because it will not be made. In other words, they're only seeing what is immediately visible to the eye. Now, you've probably heard of similar situations in real life. Just in 2011, my hometown experienced an extremely rare event. Um, the week of Monday, January 31st, we experienced a cold spell in which temperatures dropped down to below zero degrees Fahrenheit. Now, in many places here in the United States, that's not a big deal. It's pretty common in January to see that. However, I live in, a, in the desert southwest, and in my 50 years on this planet, it has never gotten that cold here before. This city is not built for that sort of, of a weather event. In homes, pipes burst. There was even an article in the local newspaper in which an economist said that, on the bright side, the burst pipes and flooded homes would help a portion of the local economy. Plumbers and construction companies would be busy repairing homes and pipes. This is the perfect example of the broken window fallacy at work. Yes, those companies were able to benefit. But how about the people who own the homes? They were no better off than they had been prior to the storm, and in some cases, probably worse off, as they might have had to postpone necessary purchases and maybe vacations that they would have otherwise taken if not for the added expenses. Now, one final note on this example. It is sometimes referred to as the blessings of destruction. And if you ever had me as your teacher, you've probably heard me rant about the idiocy of this term. It is strange how politicians and even journalists talk about all of the endless benefits and enormous acts of destruction. They talk about how we are made better, economically speaking, by war. These individuals see miracles of production, which, according to them, are achieved thanks to war. But as Henry Hazlitt noted when writing in 1946, these folks saw a post-war world that was made prosperous thanks to the fact that entire cities were leveled um, during World War II and would ha then have to be replaced. In the United States, they spoke of pent-up demand and the houses that could not have been built during the war but would now be constructed. I mention this as I want you to keep in mind as we go forward. Because again, this is our old friend, the broken window fallacy. They are confusing need with demand. War destroys, it impoverishes, and the more of this it does, the greater the post-war need becomes. But this need is not demand. Economic demand requires not only the aforementioned need, but the corresponding purchasing power. The need of, say, I don't know, a country like Afghanistan that has been ravaged by decades of war is far greater than that of the United States. However, the purchasing power, and thus the new business, which can be created in Afghanistan, is immensely smaller than that of the United States. Okay, now this leads to another fallacy, which the proponents of the broken window fallacy latch onto. They almost always think of purchasing power in terms of money. As the money supply increases, they automatically think that society is wealthier. Money can simply be printed off the printing presses. 
but when you do this, the value of a unit of money drops. This drop in value can be measured in rising prices of goods and services. Because we are almost trained to see our wealth and income in terms of money, we think we are better off as the supply of money increases, and correspondingly, so do our wages. However, prices are also increasing, so are we wealthier? I would suggest that you aren't, especially if wages do not keep up with inflation. Now remember, while your wages might increase, the things that a dollar can purchase become less and less. When I was in high school, which was just like yesterday, um, you could go to the cinema and watch a film and get popcorn and soda for about 10 bucks. I assure you, that isn't going to happen today. Just the tickets alone are $10 or more. As for the idea of backed-up demand or pent-up demand, again, this is another fallacy. Think of the broken window. Yes, it made more work for the window repair people, but the destruction of war makes more business for the people who produce certain goods. The destruction of homes and cities means more work, yes, for the building and construction industries. But the inability during the war of the economy to produce, say, cars or televisions or refrigerators does lead to a total post-war increase in demand for those items, no doubt. And to most, it will indeed seem like an increase in overall demand. However, what is really happening is that we are seeing a diversion of demand to those particular products from others. Looking at post-war Europe, people built more homes than they would have otherwise built because they needed to. But building homes meant they had less manpower and productive capacity left over for other things. Whenever a business is increasing in one direction, it must correspondingly reduce in another. In other words, the war changed the post-war direction of effort. It changed the balance of industries and the structure of industries. And in the long run, there are consequences for that. There must be another distribution of demand when the accumulated, accumulated needs for homes and other durable goods are met. Then, those industries, which for a time were favored, will shrink to allow other industries to rise and fill other needs. Finally, keep in mind that there will not simply be a difference in the pattern of post-war compared to pre-war demand. Demand will not just be diverted from one commodity to another. It will shrink in total amount. Why? Supply and demand are flip sides of the same coin. Supply creates demand because at the end of the day, supply is demand. So think of it like this. The supply of the things you make is all that people have, in effect, to offer up in exchange for the things they want. In other words, a farmer's supply of figs constitutes his demand for cars and other goods. This gets obscured for most people because of complications like wage payments and the indirect form of payment that we have in modern economies. Remember, inflation, the increase in the money supply, may look like the creation of more demand, but it's not. In terms of the actual production and exchange of real things, it is not. Demand remains the same, but money supply increases. Thus, price increases. More dollars chasing the same amount of goods means prices for those goods increases since the value of the money has dropped. Okay, so how does an economy grow? Now, when I taught economics, I always use the example of Robinson Crusoe. Sometimes it's referred to as Crusoe economics. It might seem like an extremely basic model, which it is, but it's useful to show you how an economy grows. So how does it work? Well, we assume Robinson Crusoe is shipwrecked on a desert island. The island is cut off from the rest of the world, thus trade with others is impossible. The only agent on the island is Crusoe himself, and all commodities must be produced or found from existing stocks. Also, before we go on, 
there are a couple of um, important points and terms to keep in mind. First, goods are scarce, and second, goods are in the eye of the beholder. Also, you should be aware that there are two types of goods, producer goods and consumer goods, but whether one falls under the first or second category is, again, in the eye of the beholder. One physical item may be a consumer good to Joe, while Susan views it as a producer good. But what is a consumer good? Well, a consumer good is one which Caruso can use to achieve his goals. Running water from a stream on the island is a consumer good, as it can be used to quench his thirst and help achieve the goal of remaining alive. In other words, a good that is directly useful to him is a consumer good. A producer good is one that is not directly useful to him, but is indirectly useful because it helps him obtain more consumer goods. So perhaps a long stick would be useful. It isn't directly useful, he can't eat it, he can't drink it, but perhaps it can be used to help knock coconuts off the trees that are hanging just out of his reach. Economists call this a producer good or a factor of production. Okay, now the flowing stream. And I know this sounds odd, but for economists, it falls under the category of land. Anything that is a gift of nature, like the stream or a tree that will produce coconuts indefinitely, all of those are land. The same goes for, say, a small deposit of iron ore. The most important and versatile producer good that our friend Caruso has is his own labor. Labor is the service that he performs with his body. And lastly, capital goods. They are produced um, from the combination of mixing one natural resource with labor. So think of Caruso's island, um, taking vines that are hanging from trees and turning them into a net to catch fish. That's a capital good. A shelter is a capital good that is created out of Robinson's mixing his labor with, say, rocks and branches, mud and leaves. That's a capital good. So, for illustrative purposes, Robinson can either spend time gathering food, say coconuts, or he can spend time investing in or making capital goods. But he can't do both. So, let's say that for a month he spends time gathering and saving coconuts. He eats some of what he gathers, but purposely saves some. By the end of the month, he has a nice supply saved up. Then, he spends a week, again, just for argument or illustrative purposes, he spends a week searching for the perfect stick to use as a tool to knock coconuts off the trees. This means he can get at the coconuts that have not yet fallen. In order to do this, though, he has to consume some of his savings. But now he can get more coconuts. In other words, he's become more productive. Now soon, he decides that he wants to create another capital good. This time it's a fishing net. So once again, he saves up coconuts to create a nice bank account of food. Then, for a week, instead of gathering coconuts, he gathers vines and makes his fishing net. He continues to do this every time he wants to create something like a shelter or a new net or, you know, whatever. So what am I getting at? In order to grow the economy, you must save. You save to invest. If we are spending money on immediate satisfaction, we necessarily can't also spend money on the development of the product of the future. It must be one or the other. Robinson cannot use his time to both consume goods and create goods. Now this holds true in the economy. You grow the economy through savings and investment of that savings. If the consumers are putting off the purchase of consumer goods, say they aren't going out to eat at restaurants as often, they save that money. Saving that money acts as a green light for industry. The saving of money helps to naturally push down interest rates. That tells industry that consumers are putting off their purchases. It allows them to then borrow that money and invest in factories and new products. 
The putting off of purchases also helps to lower the cost of labor, as people who would be otherwise employed in industries that deal in consumer goods will now be unemployed. Okay, so hopefully that wasn't too complicated, but I think the broken window fallacy and the quick example of Caruso economics is extremely important to keep in mind whenever one is talking economics. All right, so I know this was um, a lot to take in. Tomorrow, we will continue our primer on Austrian economics as we discuss the Austrian business cycle theory, and we will talk about money or currency. All right, see you then. Do you like the sound of the American History Podcast? My audio production is provided by the Mad Octopus. Check them out over at madoctopusmedia.com.